0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to series two of Broke and Ambitious with me, Frances Keaton. Each episode, I speak to a professional creative about how they got into the arts and how they managed to survive. We talk day jobs, good ones, bad ones and weird ones plus how to stay creative on the side and any money-saving tips. As we enter series two, I have a favour to ask. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to give the show a boost. My guest today is Michael Keaton, not the famous Hollywood actor, but the Liverpool-born author and, you guessed it, my dad. Liverpool born and bred, Michael Keaton has worked in some of the dirtiest hotels in Wales, played in a semi-professional Cayley band, and taught in a warm and challenging school in Newport before getting off for good behaviour. His books include Clay Cross, The Gift Trilogy, Chaney Behave, Tales from the Murringer, Phage, and Anthony Trollope, Land, Power, and Society. In this episode, prepare for some wonderful insights into getting started as a writer, some disgusting tales of working in factories and restaurants, and a toe-curling moment where my own father tries to plug an erotic novel he wrote. Yeah. Here is my conversation with Michael Keaton. Welcome, Michael. Before we begin, I should say that this is slightly stretching the Broken Ambitious theme, because you're not broke. Nope. At least I hope you're not.
1: (laughs) No, I'm good.
0: But it would explain why you're so stingy. You were a teacher for many years. How many years?
1: Oh, about um, 30.
0: 30 years, okay. But now you are a professional and freelance creative, a writer Mm -hmm. by trade, and we're going to be talking about that. And I have to say, it's interesting to have an older guest on the show. hope you don't mind me saying that. No, no, no. (laughs) You're a baby boomer. I'm a millennial. We should hate each other. But we don't.
1: <laughs> no, not yet.
0: Because we're related. <laughs> we have been since I was born. You are my father, which explains the, the same surname, in case anyone's wondering. Because, of course, there is another famous Michael Keaton on the arts scene. The mm. actor of Batman, Beetlejuice and Birdman. Do you sometimes feel like you're overshadowed by this other Michael Keaton when it comes to the arts?
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I suppose you're in different, different areas, aren't you? Yeah. I might purposefully misspell your name when I upload this podcast so that people think that I'm interviewing that Michael Keaton. Is that okay? No. <laughs> so, Michael, before we dive into your day job... Is it okay if I call you Michael? Is that yeah, weird? that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Are you going to be speaking like a hippie for the whole time? <laughs> <sighs> I'm sorry. So, Michael, before we dive into your day jobs, could you briefly tell us what's led you to where you are now as a writer?
1: Hmm. I think basically... I've always wanted to write the stories I want to read. The earliest memory I've got is when I had rheumatic fever as a child. I was about seven. And I was flat on my back in hospital. And I was barely, I couldn't read. I hadn't been taught to read at that point. And the local doctor, Dr. Young, I've forgotten his name. He gave me, for no good reason other than the fact he was a good man, he gave me, mother, uh, three Beatrix Potter books oh. so I could read in bed. And, of course, I couldn't read. But the pictures were fantastic. <laughs> and for an entire year on my back, I was—I would you know, spend time just staring at the pictures. Jeremy Fisher and Mr. Todd were my favourites. And because I couldn't read the stories, I was making up my own stories about them.
0: Oh, and that's I remember so
1: sweet. that really clearly. And ever since, I've always been writing off and on. Uh, I think, for example, when I was about 13 or so, I read an awful book, some people say, but I liked it, uh, The Last Days of Pompeii by Bulwell Lytton. It's got a really bad press as the worst opening line of any book. What is it? I've forgotten. I think it was a dark and stormy night, I think.
0: It sounds like that's a cocktail.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but I think then that really fired me. Um, and I started re- writing really substandard Roman short stories. Really? I that, yeah. Didn't I remember it? I had a hero called Marcus. And classic his, name. Classic name. Classic <laughs> cliche. Uh, no doubt they are appalling. And then I started reading um, Leslie Charteris. He wrote The Saint. Mm-hmm. James Bond. And I tried my hand writing substandard thrillers. Mm-hmm. I just remember again, I must have thinking about Mark or Marcus, because my hero is called Mark, and he had leather gloves. He
0: had leather and gloves? He had leather
1: gloves. I remember his name, his hands fixed around the steering wheel as he was racing down country lanes. That
0: sounds brilliant.
1: Uh, it was crap. Oh. <laughs> 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 but then, then to the base, you know, life got on the way, and I didn't write for some time. Often, on, I've been but often on, only.
0: So you grew up in Liverpool, and what did you do when you left school?
1: Um, I went to become a cook. My dad went to sea, and I wanted to go to sea, and he said, no way, unless you got a trade, otherwise you would be a dog's body. So I thought, I'd become a ship's cook. And so I went to Kaysen College for three years, and became a cook, and realised I wasn't a brilliant cook. Now, the idea of doing that for the rest of my life depressed me. And so... I'd also joined the Labour Party, Liverpool Young Socialists, and part of the militant group, which some will know, some won't. But I was so impressed by my new friends, most of whom went to university or were doing A-levels, and I thought, well, I could do that too. And so, basically, on the spur of the moment, I actually signed up for a wonderful place called the Institute of Further Education in Liverpool, I did my O-levels in a year. I did my A-levels in a year. Not because I was brilliant so much, I was just really hard working. And so I would do, you know, an eight-hour day in, in the college. And then maybe two hours overtime some days in the central library, which is a wonderful building in Liverpool. And it was just easily done. The only problem I did have was I lost a lot of weight. Because um, I didn't have that much money. Mum and Dad couldn't afford that much. And I lost weight. I lost all my chubby youth. And I became kind of a slender sex god.
0: No, you didn't. You didn't become a slender sex god, Dad.
1: I I became thin.
0: Right. And I lacked energy. Right. Okay, Uh, it doesn't sound like a sex god. It sounds like a malnourished Dickensian character.
1: (laughs) I'll settle for that.
0: And then you studied English at Swansea.
1: Uh, History. History. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing well, I
0: I didn't think I'd have to research this because you're my dad, but clearly I did. You studied history. Yes. At Swansea. In Swansea. And then you did a teaching degree.
1: Yeah, mainly because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I think a lot of teachers end up teaching because they don't know what else to do. Mm. Of course, in those days, uh, if you took a course like teaching, you didn't go and say, oops, mistake. You just got on with it and um, and Christ, became good, mm. or at least adequate.
0: Well, from your retirement and all the wonderful cards and presents you got from students, I think you really were a fantastic teacher and changed lots of lives.
1: That's very nice. My aim is, my aim is <laughs> but, to make you cry in this podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but your first published book, I suppose, technically was, uh, well, you drew and wrote a book called Fred the Black Rat. Yes, which I, for I you. Which I still have. And I thought it was an actual book that everyone had. So I used to say to my friends, have you read Fred the Black Rat? <laughs> and it wasn't even... I mean, it was just a photocopied, stapled piece of paper. It was what? beautiful, but I thought that that was a book that we'd got from, like, a shop.
1: Are well, you were a simple girl.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Could I just ask a question? Where does the basket weaving course come into this?
1: Ah. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to bear this in mind, because... I was in, as I said, I was in hospital for those years. I failed my 11 plus and I left school at 15 without anything really. And I thought I'd like to get an English O you know, level. I know what, no, I've forgotten why, but I thought it'd be a good thing to do. And so I went to night school. And you got to bear in mind, I was a pretty thick and simple 15 year old. And scared at my pants, you know, the idea of go, sitting among strangers in English show level. And so I wandered down the corridors of this uh, opening night sort of night school, looking for the English room to sign up. And whether it's because I didn't really want to do it because I was too scared, or whether I just couldn't find the damn thing, I wandered around, thoroughly lost in this big school, until old ladies took me under the ring and they said, what, what are you looking for? And I said, I don't know. And they said, come with us lad." I know they are doing basket work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I cannot get my head around this. So really you went don't. to try and study English, yeah. and then you just got influenced by these devilish old ladies These who are
1: Liverpool ladies Le- are different.
0: How old are we talking?
1: Well, I don't know. I would say they're in their 50s.
0: That's not old. Okay, so, but they were forceful enough to convince you. What else did they push on you? Drugs? <laughs> basket work and cocaine?
1: Basket work and cocaine, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, did you make a basket?
1: I did. I made two. I made two before I realised this is a dreadful mistake. <laughs>
0: oh, I'm just imagining you just weaving this, this wicker and being like, okay, I came here to do English. What wicker, have I done with my life? A wicker
1: man. I mean, Mum was very pleased.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because I've been home for the last three months and we've both been working as freelancers in that time. I've been doing self-tares upstairs, you've been writing downstairs, and you're very disciplined. We're going to talk about your sort of daily creative routine later, but we're going to talk about the jobs you've had to do on the side, because obviously you taught for 35 years.
1: The i was 30. 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be dead until 35.
0: 30 years. But there have been other jobs. There were jobs at the start of your career when you didn't know what you wanted to do, and there were jobs more recently that you've done while working as a writer. So could we start with your best day job?
1: The best day job I've ever had. I've never had one. <laughs> no, I've never ever uh, had a job. <laughs> I'd come home, from my side i enjoy enjoyed that. No, I just like jobs. But a job. that's just...
0: why it's a day job. Okay, it's never going to be ideal. Okay, I
1: used to enjoy being a Christmas postman. <laughs> and at one point, again, when I yeah, I used to do that, uh, uh, Christmas, as the name suggests. <laughs> <laughs> and I often thought, that'd be a good job. I'd be happy as a postman. But I noticed recently to wear these short trousers. <laughs> I, I, yes. could, I couldn't be dealing with that.
0: We actually had a guest on a podcast before, Richard Bond, who said he wanted to be a postman because well, he would wear shorts. Well, that was one of the perks.
1: But it takes all sorts.
0: <laughs> I think he's just proud of his legs, but you're obviously not. I am. You're proud
1: of I, legs. I have wonderful legs.
0: <laughs> Moving on. So Christmas postman, what kind of age were you when you did this?
1: Oh, I think I was about um sixteen. I was you know, I was in Cajun College. So you need all when you can guess in between times. So Christmas the Christmas post. I think we probably did it about Ooh, a good five years, every Christmas there was, man and boy, <laughs> put the, the post with boxes.
0: And what were the main perks?
1: The main perks were, um, yeah, cheese rolls and a beer, was not you?
0: Right. So the main perks of your job were just Always lunch drink, break. Always
1: food, yeah. Yeah,
0: okay. I mean, that's not technically part of the job, is it? That's no, just what? life on the side.
1: Yeah, well...
0: Didn't you used to whistle?
1: Oh, that was known as a paperboy. Okay, okay.
0: Did you not whistle when you were postman? That was specifically paperboy paper boy, Michael. The paper and boy then whistle. postman more of a sober. more yes, yes. Okay. you just delivered the post. Just
1: delivered the post with a smile, but just delivered the post.
0: And what did you have to wear in those days?
1: Oh, um, anything. No uniform. <coughs> Didn't have a uniform.
0: Okay. So we just went with a, a toga?
1: Jeans and a donkey jacket.
0: What's a donkey jacket? It's
1: one of those um It's one of those uh, heavy navy blue coats that Dockers used to wear.
0: Okay. Donkey jacket. It'll come back in fashion before you know it, guys. I'm sure it will. And what were the hours like? Did you have to get up early?
1: Yes. Very early. I remember the cold winter's nights, and the the sorting office was very yellowy because they had the old-fashioned lights, bright yellow, glary lights, and it was cold. It's
0: just a little preview of some of Michael Keaton's writing there. Bright (laughs) glary lights. Wonderful. (laughs) privilege. (laughs) Shut up. Um, Okay, so that's your best day job. Nothing else to add on that?
1: No. Best day job.
0: Okay. Being a Christmas postman. There you go. Excellent. Giddy Giddy heights. Mm. Okay, so moving on to your worst day job.
1: It was more a worst night job.
0: Flipping the format. I like it.
1: It was um, basically working in a bottle factory.
0: Right. I was a bit worried when you said night job, actually. I was like, where's this going? Is he getting the legs out again?
1: Thank you. (laughs) Now, I worked for Minster Minerals. I was a bottle factory in Liverpool, and night job, and I was the chief capper. (coughs) What that meant was I stood in front of the capping machine, and just below me, because I stood on a little little, uh, pedestal, Mm -hmm. so I was in line with the capping machine, and below me the conveyor belt went by just full of these clinking bottles, full of uh, shandies, cokes, all this business. And I had to make sure the capping machine was always full, because all these bottles were going past relentlessly, mm-hmm. and as they went onto the capping machine, they're capped. But if I daydreamed, or lost count, and the capping machine went empty, they have all these bottles going past, uncapped, and they, they never, ever stopped the conveyor belt, so, you had to go running around all panic set loose, take, take these bottles off and put them back again, and somebody else filled the capping machine. And that was the most exciting part of the job, because it was a night job, so you worked from six at the evening till six in the morning. And to make things worse, there was a huge clock directly behind the capping machine.
0: How Orwellian. So,
1: all I had to do basically was stir at the capping machine and try and not look at the clock, because every time you looked at the clock, A minute had passed. Mm, Classic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But somebody else had an equally unpleasant job, and he went quietly mad, I think. Because further down the line, Mm. there was a guy who sat all night staring at the bottles, (laughs) looking for quality control.
0: Oh no. And the quality
1: control basically meant making sure that each bottle had no foreign objects in it, and each bottle was full to the requisite level. And then things I had you know. And it took the bottle off. That's all he did. All oh, nice. And he went quite mad, as I said, because he ended up a bit of classic industrial sabotage. The place was full of cockroaches and other insects. Oh, and every now and again, no, it was just it was just dead cockroach <laughs> in one of the bottles.
0: But he was on quality control. Surely he's just shooting himself in the foot there.
1: Well, no, because nobody actually. There was nobody else. There's was, there was nobody quality control the quality, right. <laughs> checking the quality control controller.
0: Oh dear! He had
1: that power. That's so horrendous. I've never ever drunk. I can say this now because I think Mr. Middles is out of business. I was going to
0: say okay, yeah.
1: but um, I've never, never ever drank a Mr. Middle after that.
0: That's horrendous. I love the idea of these old school factories. Who was filling up the bottles with the with the shandy and the coke?
1: I've, you know, I've forgotten now. I don't know if I explored further down the line. It uh, <laughs> was just me and the capping machine. <laughs>
0: And quality control cockroach man. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the clock. And the clock. Good gracious. I'm just imagining you filling the capping machine and then daydreaming, as I imagine you did often, and you're thinking of Mark with his leather gloves on the steering
1: wheel. <laughs>
0: and before you know it, you haven't capped about 16 bottles, so you've
1: run that out. Was it, yeah.
0: How many times would you have to do that?
1: I think it happened about twice a night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. 12-hour shift, are you sure?
1: It was from six till six.
0: That's That's 12 hours. Is it? Actually, I think so. I it was. <laughs> Let me just check. Of
1: course it is. <laughs> six till six. Yeah, okay.
0: And did you have a little cheese sandwich in the middle?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure my mum would have given me a little pack lunch.
0: i you going to cry? No.
1: Nope. <laughs> there was another job.
0: Oh yeah, cool.
1: go. <laughs> well, when I was a cook, I got a job in the, a big hotel in Landudno. Huge hotel. Mm. And a very prestigious hotel. And I was a waiter. And that involved getting up at five o'clock in the morning so you could lay the tables for the first breakfasts at six. And then you served breakfasts until about ten and cleared up. And then you had to go again. You had a short break, just enough to walk the pier, and that was it. And you have to be back again for lunch hour to lay the tables and serve lunch. And then you had a slightly longer break. Then you had to do the same thing again for dinner. Uh, and that went on till about ten o'clock at night. So it was quite a you know, time-consuming job. But the worst was the morning shift when you did breakfast because you were feeling queasy. And you had to go in, feeling quite queasy at 6 in the morning, 6.30, to the kitchens. Then they stank of grease and everything you can imagine what kitchens did in those days. Mm. And what was worse, they served they fried the eggs and bacon on the lids of big soup tureens. Because that's a clever idea because they're very, very large and wide and round. That's good. They also used them as ashtrays. Oh, no. And so, as you said, two eggs and bacon, please. they would be fishing the eggs and bacon with the fish slice out of these um, impromptu frying pans. Mm. And dodging cigarette butts and ash.
0: Oh, that's horrendous. Uh,
1: that really was. It took a strong stomach.
0: Oh, how do you like your eggs in the morning? Um, smoky. That's horrendous. <laughs> that's awful. So cockroaches in one place and um, then...
1: Cigarette butts and ash in the other.
0: Where was the Food Standards Agency in these days? <laughs> Awful. Did you have to, when you work at this hotel, did you ever have to wrap up knives and forks in napkins for the tables?
1: Yes. That was easy. That was easy.
0: But so tedious. I had to do that once when I worked in a bar in Lyon. And I think I, once I wrapped about 400. Is that likely? Maybe not. Quite Maybe possible. 200. i got repetitive strain
1: injury. So was was worse. You're, you're lucky. Luxury. Um <laughs> We had to um, fold our stiff linen napkins in ornate shapes. Like little crap, you know, weird, weird, on, it was like origami of linen.
0: What, did your basket weaving course come in useful?
1: <laughs> no, it didn't. No. In fact, I never actually mastered it. One of, my, well, one of the exams I did was a waiting exam, restaurant service exam, which mm-hmm. is in case college. And it was a practical, and you had to uh, lay the table uh then you had to to fold up, as I said, these weird napkins and weird shapes. And I couldn't do it. And I knew I was going to fail in that one. But Mike Adams, an old friend of mine, he was on the table next to me doing the same exam. And when the examiner wasn't looking, he quickly fiddled his napkins and passed it over to me.
0: Oh, bless him. That's so, so kind.
1: I passed on my t- restroom service.
0: That's so sweet. Are you crying? A little bit. No, I'm not. (laughs) Shout out to Mike Adams, then, who helped you. Shout out to
1: Mike Adams, yeah. (laughs) Still still friends.
0: Brilliant. Okay, so we had two worst jobs there, and I have to agree with you. They were...
1: Pretty dire.
0: Very bleak, yeah. Cockroaches and cigarette ash. The next one we're going to talk about is your weirdest day job.
1: Weirdest?
0: (laughs) It's almost as if I didn't tell you the plan of this podcast, isn't it? (laughs)
1: pink exams that was so boring the only way I could deal with that was to make the time go quickly so for example I became a living clock you can visualize this huge sports hall with all the desks laid out for the poor old kids and I worked out if I stood my back to the wall and every minute walked shuffled two feet to my left wait a minute shuffled two feet to my left Wait a minute. You've got the idea. It would take an entire hour to do the full circuit of the hall. So that was great for an hour exam. Bit of a bore for a two-hour exam, but you'd do the same thing again. Then you'd have invigilators running. Anybody put their hand up to go to the toilet? You'd run for those. They're pure gold dust. You got out the hall and he walked into the toilets and you stood outside and a collar free for as long as they were occupied.
0: Have a cheeky cheese roll if you're lucky. <laughs> on the sly. Uh,
1: and then you play Tick. Is it called Tick or Tag?
0: I don't know what game you're about to describe. I've never heard of Tick. No,
1: tick or Tag. Tick. Tag. Well, you, t- you touch somebody and they're, they're it. And they're... I'm
0: sorry. Are you a caveman? How old are you? You've forgotten the game Tag.
1: Tag. Okay. It's been going
0: on for years.
1: We used to call it Tick in Liverpool. There you go. Okay. Anyway, so you can play tag. Have it your way, tag.
0: Tag. Uh, now you're tag. saying tack. tag.
1: Tag. <laughs> you play tag. With grown men and grown women, <laughs> in some cases very old men and very old women, would play tag. And the idea was you can just walk discreetly to somebody because you couldn't run with all these people doing exams. So you had to walk <laughs> discreetly. And the person seeing you coming, you were, you were up to, so they would walk discreetly away from you. And you would quicken your pace, sneak upon them. And you tagged them and walked briskly away.
0: I cannot believe that you were playing tag while these students were sitting their GCSEs and their A levels. And this was how many years ago, Dad? Michael? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I'd say about, um, I've stopped ages ago, but um, five years ago.
0: Five years ago. So a man in his 60s playing tag. And are you sure that the other people were playing tag? You were just. ...ambling towards
1: them. Yeah, I never thought of that.
0: I mean, who had suggested this game?
1: Oh, it's a long-standing game.
0: Right, so it was more just by instinct, you felt. So it's very likely that no one was actually playing it. They just thought, I think Michael's um, got a few issues. <laughs> feeling
1: lonely. I mean, Michael's feeling lonely.
0: He keeps coming up and... I mean, it's Touching a good lonely. job you didn't get charged for sexual harassment, Dad. That's awful. So playing tag, surely someone must have suggested that, please, for my own sanity.
1: Okay, somebody suggested that to me. The chief invigilator.
0: The chief invigilator. invigilator. These are pensioners playing tag. It's kind of beautiful, but not in an exam hall. You kind of, you expect, I mean, the amount of cheating that must have been going on with these students because the invigilators were not doing their job.
1: No, seriously, we're, we're very, very conscientious. Right when I, when I was encountering the bricks in the wall,
0: and when you weren't shuffling around, can you imagine being a student in that hall, looking up and seeing this weird old man just shuffling? Hey, weird po-
1: man, see, weird man.
0: Okay, you're happy with the weird, yeah, not I'm the happy old. With the weird. Okay,
1: Weird's
0: good. now I would like to ask you, how do you stay creative with writing? So, what's your daily routine? Because from what I've seen, you mainly just sit around eating sardines on toast, listening to Bob Dylan. <laughs>
1: That's the ritual, yes. I need a bit of Bob before I start writing. Well, first of all, the ritual is I'll sit in front of the computer screen. Then I'll immediately get distracted by going on somebody's blog or other. And I just need about five minutes of guilt. And once the guilt's gone, I start work. Now, what I normally do is, the day before, I always make a point of ending the work with an unfinished sentence or the middle of a paragraph. So I've got something to go to immediately, finishing off a sentence, finishing off a paragraph. That's a good idea. It it, it works. Then when I start a new chapter, I always put below chapter 16, chapter 12, whatever it is, a little side heading to do. And I just put down some bullet points. What's going to happen in this chapter? And then you start writing and eventually, if you're lucky, you've done about 800 or 1,000 words before you know what's happened. The Best thing to do is always say to yourself, and it's a cliché, as people always say it, so it works. Always say to yourself, I'll just do 200 words a day. Anyone can write like 200 words. And then before you know it, you are only do 500 words. And it just carries on. And then I normally stop up to 1,000. I think 1,000 a day is pretty good.
0: It's incredible, 1,000 a day. Do you stick to that often?
1: No, sometimes I only get to 600. Other mm. times I might get to twelve or 1,300 sometimes. I so it's really in the mood. Very rarely do I stop at 200, but the most important thing is bum on the seat and do something every day. So even if I've got to go shopping or gardening or keep my daughter company.
0: What an exciting life you lead, tell us more.
1: <laughs> even if I've only got half an hour, I'll squeeze in 200 words.
0: That's very impressive. And I'm sure that our listeners are dying to know, do you do much reading? How do you inspire yourself to write?
1: Ah. The reading is a luxury I indulge in at night time. I have stopped watching TV some time ago, but night time I read. And a lot of the reading is geared to what I might be writing at the moment. So, for example, if I'm writing something that's set in Canadian wilderness. For example. Or the, for example, or the 16th century colonies. I'll go back to all the books I've read. So, for example, if I'm describing a snow scene. There are so many books I think I like want to know. So sometimes I use books as um, memory, for atmosphere, memory aids. Mm-hmm. Other books are research, very clear research. But most of what I write, essentially, is what I want to read. And I think most writers, that's the reason for writing. But you've read books, and now you've reached a position where you want to um, read something that's not being written, and the only way you can do that is to write it yourself. Mm,
0: that's beautiful. I <laughs> like that. It's inspiring.
1: One thing I would plug is workshop. And that's very good. Because it's a situation whereby you publish a chapter on that workshop and people across the world, Australia, Canada, America, God knows where, they will read that chapter and they will crit it. And you get this incredible feedback, not from a local advisors group, but from total strangers across the world. And In return, you've got to crit other people's work. So every post you make, you've got to crit four people. Mm -hmm. So you end up critting more than you post. So there's no parasites. But the wonderful thing is, you learn so much by criticizing or critting other people's work. Because you see things and tropes and weaknesses in their work, you think, geez, I I do this as well.
0: Do you have any? tips for saving money as a creative
1: don't spend
0: there's the inner sting coming out (laughs) don't spend the man who never took me to a Liverpool match even though he Uh, promised
1: I know I know I know
0: is that still on the cards is it I
1: I might leave it at my will A season, a depressing, a season note. triggered.
0: Oh my goodness. It's, I'm over it now. I was only into it when Michael Owen was playing. So don't spend. Is don't that what spend. we're. Okay. I mean,
1: I've got two pairs of jeans. <laughs> Why would you need three pairs of jeans?
0: <laughs> the bare minimum. Bare minimum. Right. But Poly- don't you ever miss sort of expressing yourself in your style? Like, don't you ever miss the donkey jacket, for example?
1: Being there, done that.
0: Okay. I mean, I guess some people might feel like. It's part of their art to express themselves through fashion. I wouldn't necessarily recommend only having two pair of jeans. But I see what you're saying, investing in something good and not having loads of cheap things.
1: Yes. I mean if my wife will back that out, um <laughs> Do
0: you mean back that up?
1: Back that back that up. <laughs> see how a way of words.
0: Um just backing out of the driveway <laughs> in the car.
1: No, I mean I might spend a year not buying anything. Mm-hmm all of a sudden I decide I do need a jacket or we do need this I'll do the research and I'll spend I'll get the most expensive so don't spend much but when you do spend spend it
0: <laughs> okay well, thank you for that riddle <laughs> <laughs> finally Michael what would be your dream job or what would be your dream position to be in as a creative, as a writer.
1: That's so hard, because I've got it at the moment. Um, but basically, I'd like to make a million-dollar film. What? I'd, <laughs> my trilogy, the Gift Trilogy, Ah, I would like it to be turned into a TV series or a film.
0: Mm, okay. So, briefly, what is the plot of this? It
1: concerns Elizabeth McBride, who is 12 years old in 1912 when her mother dies... And she discovers that she is, in fact, uh, possessed of supernatural power. And the three books follow her life story from 1912 to 1941. This involves Alistair Crowley. You've got minor walking parts of Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, so the leading Nazis. But her arch rival, her nemesis, is someone who's very close to her.
0: I see. So, elevator pitch.
1: An occult down to Oh, I
0: like that—an occult down to There's definitely a, a, a niche for that.
1: Yep, yeah. with uh, involving Nazis, Satanists, and the seedy underbelly of the English aristocracy.
0: Oh, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> that's a great logline. And anyone you'd like to be attached to this in terms of directors, crew, actors?
1: Oh, actors. Well, Elizabeth Blyde. You'd be a f- shoo-in, Oh, thank you. Except I wasn't trying to plan to, that at all. Except you'd have to have your hair dyed raven black. Okay.
0: I don't know if I'm willing to do that. Yeah, I hear right. there are some excellent wig experts out there. So, Michael Keaton, just to recap. Um, your best day job was working as a Christmas postman. Your worst day job was bottle capping and working in a hotel with smoky eggs. And your weirdest day job was invigilating exams whilst playing tag. Your advice for saving money is don't spend money, but when you do spend a lot. (laughs) And your dream is have your Gift Trilogy turned into a blockbuster film or TV series. Amazing. That was very insightful. And thank you for sharing your uh, creative writing routine as well. I'm sure lots of people will benefit from that. So before we finish, what would you like to plug?
1: The Gift Trilogy.
0: Okay. And all your other books?
1: Well, there's Phage. That's P-H-A-G-E. Mm-hmm. Dog Fire. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, we're not mentioning that one. That's a like, an erotic novel.
1: Yes. Well, it worked. I mean, that was a serious book. And I couldn't get it published anywhere. And somebody suggested, I put some bonking scenes in.
0: Bonking scenes. Bonking
1: scenes. Oh sex goodness. scenes. Yes. So I thought, well, I can do that. So I looked at the book again. And I just had to tweak it here and there. I just put four or five really steamy sex scenes in. Painful. Yeah, Painful. I can understand Francis. But then it worked. It was snapped up by an American publisher. And all because I put four or five bonking scenes in a serious book.
0: Um yes, okay. And and then you, you told your daughter excitedly that you'd had your first book published yep. and failed to mention any of the bonking scenes. So yep. I gleefully bought it. Went to chapter one, fine. Chapter two, full on sex scene, and have been in therapy ever since.
1: (laughs) Yes. Okay,
0: so Dark Fire, moving swiftly on.
1: Clay Cross. Uh, Clay Cross is a parody of a late 1940s, early 1950s Private Eye, a parody of the noir genre epitomised by Mickey Spillane, and set in 1980s Newport where all the attitudes of the early 1950s are so comically misplaced that the character becomes quite vulnerable because he's so much out of his depth. Mm. Uh, Think of um, a Don Quixote in a fedora and trench coat.
0: Excellent. Okay, So, and your books are available on Amazon? Amazon. Brilliant. We'll put links to your books and to your blog in the podcast info. Any final thoughts, Michael Keaton?
1: No, I'll have a <laughs> <laughs>